0: How's everybody doing this morning? You good? All right. I'll believe you later. That didn't sound super believable. That's okay. I get it. I'm new. You don't know. It's fine. There. Um, it's, it really is good to be with you all. And as Joseph said, my name is Adam Flint. I'm one of the pastors at 1122. And part of my role um, is that I oversee kind of everything that we do globally, church planning, mission sending, and all that. And so I spend a bunch of time... Uh, out among church plants all over um, really the world again now. It's nice. Air travel is opening back up so you can get to some of those places and see what God is doing. And it, as Joseph said, it's really neat to, be, to think what you're doing here now in this place. You know, hours ago there were people on the other side of the Atlantic that were doing that. And it's just like a baton that just keeps getting handed off um, and around the world and this praise keeps going on. And I love That you guys have a kingdom heart like that—not just to the ends of the earth, but also in this city—and we get to be a be a part of doing that. Um, I'm married to Kristen. We've been married uh, about 23 years, and we have Gavin and Sophie, our kids. Our Gavin, our son, is in college and home for spring break and leaves again today. So if I just start crying at uh, uh, you know for no reason, that's what's happening. Um, So. Uh, We just got over him leaving, you know, nine months ago, and then he keeps showing back up, so, um, which we're glad you do. Uh, uh, About 18 months ago, I got this weird cough, and it was like, I do that, and one day, Chris, I kept doing it, I didn't realize I was doing it, one day, Kristen came up to me, and she's like, listen, we're in the middle of a pandemic, could you quit coughing all the time? I'm like, I didn't even know I was doing it, and then I was like, I got this weird pain, like, in my back, and so I I just thought, like, it wasn't allergy season, I don't know why I was coughing, and then I thought, maybe I'm almost 47 years old, maybe I just pulled something, it takes a minute for that to heal, you know, how that goes, and a week went on, a couple weeks went on, a month goes on, nothing gets better, so I do what you should never do, which is go to, like, WebMD and look up your symptoms, And uh, I just type in coughing back pain, and it comes up with heartburn and indigestion. So that's sweet, never had that before, but I'll get some Tums. I took some Tums. It didn't work. So I go and get some, like, over-the-counter Prilosec or something. I take that. That doesn't work. I go to the GI guy. He's like, ah, that stuff's junk. Don't, that doesn't work. Take this. So he gives me, like, this prescription, and he's like, you're going to have to take that for a month. So I take that for a month. It doesn't do anything. So finally, I go, and they they do a scan. It's like Friday afternoon, midday. They do a scan. Uh, They look. I go home. Everything's fine. Kristen and I are in the kitchen, and we have a kind of a bar that separates the sink from our breakfast room, and we're sitting there, and we're talking, and uh, my phone is sitting kind of up on top of the counter, and as we're talking about, you know, what had just happened, all of a sudden, the phone rings, and it's the doctor. Now, listen, I know you guys, all your eyes just went like that because you know the doctor never calls you back, ever. I mean, they don't ever call, sorry, if you're a doctor, you just don't call us back, and you certainly don't call back like 10 minutes after the appointment unless it's not good. And in that moment, we looked at the phone, and we were like, "Uh uh-oh. So I answered the phone, and I talked for a minute, and I heard the one word you never want to hear a doctor say. You've got cancer, we think. Found a tumor. And he said, uh, I want to see you back here tomorrow morning. And he said something like, I'll be in the office at 6, I'm available at 7, and I'm like, it's Friday, tomorrow's Saturday, 7 a.m. on a Saturday. He's like, yeah, we want you in here at 7 a.m. And I was like, we both looked at each other and we were like, uh-oh, this is not good. So we go in, they do a scan, sure enough they, they find a tumor that's about the size of my pointer finger and it's growing from the front of my neck, across my vocal nerve, and back towards my spine. So it was touching my vocal nerve. That's why I was coughing. And it was back towards my spine. We think that's why things were hurting. So it goes on. And after a handful of months of testing and diagnosis and all that kind of stuff, I finally have surgery. And they find not one tumor, but they find two tumors, another one about the size of my pinky, one kind of sitting behind the other one. And that one ends up being cancer. And the good news is they got rid of it everything's fine, take a deep breath, it's all okay. But in the middle of that, it really was legitimately suffering. It was, I mean, it was hard. It was physical pain. It was emotional suffering. There were spiritual moments in there. There were mental suffering in there. There was relational suffering in the middle of all of that. Now listen, Jesus made some astounding promises, he made, I mean, he said things like, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I won't lose one of you. I mean, he made some incredible promises, but he made a promise in the Gospel of John that you don't even have to be a follower of Jesus to know that this one is true. He said, in this life, you will have trouble, or you will have trial, or tribulation, or suffering, or hurt, or pain. Now listen, a show of hands. How many of you have or are suffering or gone through hurt or pain in some shape or form in your life? Raise your hand. The rest of you are lying in church. <laughs> Let's do it again. How many of you have suffered? Don't compare yours to mine. How many of you have hurt or suffered or been in pain at some point in your life? Come on, raise your hand. Or are in right now. Yes. This, I know we don't like this promise. But it is true, you either have gone through some suffering, you are currently going through some suffering, or I hate to be the one to break the bad news to you, you're about to go through something. And suffering and God, those things are probably some of the most profound things you can think about in your life. Now, when most of us start to feel suffering, we have some like go-to moves, don't we? Some things that we just, we want to do and we're really good at, like, we'll just deny it. It's not, I mean, that's not really suffering. That's not, it's no big deal. I'm not, I'm not really hurting. My back doesn't really hurt. My chest, I'm not really coughing, you know, no. Or we minimize it, right? Like when I said, are you going through something right now? You're looking at me and thinking, well, I didn't have cancer, so, and you minimized it. But it doesn't make it any less true. Or we'll do things like, we'll just, we'll muscle our way through it. We'll kind of white knuckle it, right? We're just, I'm going to power through this thing. I'm going to, I'm going to get it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to own it. And I'm going to, I'm going to get through this thing. And we kind of white knuckle it. Or what we'll do is we'll just, we'll self-medicate. We'll do things to try to make the pain, whatever it is, go away. Everything from like taking a Tylenol to taking a two-fo mini drinks. Or we'll, we'll entertain ourselves out of our pain. We'll just upgrade Netflix. And we'll watch, we'll just, oh, I, lo- I love that, whatever that is, that series, that movie, that whatever. And we'll just watch it to try to forget. Or we'll find, we'll, we'll try to busy ourselves out of our pain. And so we'll dive headlong into our work. Or we'll dive headlong into being a volunteer. We'll headlong into serving even at church. Or we'll get into a hobby that will just distract us from the pain and the suffering in our lives. Now, if you go out and you Google how to deal with pain and suffering, you will get pages and pages and pages and pages of tips and tricks about how to get through pain and suffering. And that's fine. You, you should find great tips and tricks to get through your pain and your suffering. But what I want to talk about today is not some more good advice on how to get through pain and suffering. The thing I want to talk about today is some good news of what God is doing in the middle of your pain and suffering. Because you can ask, where did this come from, and why is this happening, and how do I get through it? But I think the most important question to be asked in it, the really profound question in the middle of whatever your pain and your suffering is, is, God, what are you doing right now? What are you doing in the middle of my suffering right now? And I think if we can get a hold of that thing, all of the other questions about our pain and our suffering and God in the middle of it fall into their proper place. And so what I want to do today is we're going to go to John chapter 11 and Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John chapter 11, and we're going to look at the story of a guy named Lazarus. We're going to study a whole book of the Bible, Uh, So, I mean a whole, not a whole book, that would have been bad, a whole chapter of the Bible, that's enough, So, so you're going to have to listen fast. So John chapter 11, verse 1, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And do, you, do you see that last little bit right there? Lazarus is ill and Jesus loves him. Those two things are not mutually exclusive of one another. Je- Lazarus is sick and Jesus loves him. Those things can coexist in the same space at the same time. And so when you're asking God, what are you doing in the middle of my suffering? What Jesus is doing in the middle of our suffering is that he's endlessly loving us in our suffering. In Jeremiah 31, verse 3, it says, this is God speaking through Jeremiah. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. Or in 1 John chapter 4 verse 8 it says God is love. Hebrews chapter 13 it says that God is the same yesterday today and forever. So if you think about that, God is love. He never changes. And he promises to love you with an everlasting love and be faithful, continually faithful in his love. It means this, no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what kind of suffering or hurt or pain you are going through right now, and it might be physical, it might be an illness, it might be be emotional, it might be mental, it might be relational, whatever that pain is, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is loving, that is his character. Therefore, he loves you no matter your circumstances. You can't look at your circumstances to determine how God feels about you. Do you know where you go to know how much God loves you? It's not your situation. It's not your circumstances. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. If you want to know how God loves you, don't look at your situation because you can have a bad situation and God still loves you. The thing that tells you definitively how God feels about you is the cross of Jesus Christ. When Gavin was, was little, we had bunk beds and he would always sleep in his bottom bunk bed. And one night he goes to bed, we go to bed. It's the middle of the night. We're all asleep. And in the middle of the night, all of a sudden we just hear, boom, thud. And you know, parents, you know this, right? Like there's a cry from a little kid that's like, I'm faking it, but I really just want you to come and like do whatever I want you to do. And then there is the cry that is like, "Uh uh-oh, something has gone terribly wrong. And it was that like blood-curdling Scream in the middle of the night. And what had happened, we ran in there. Gavin had crawled up in his top bunk, fallen asleep, and he had rolled out of his bed asleep and woke up to falling onto the ground and breaking his arm. Now, I know what you're thinking is, you horrible parents, why didn't you have bed rails on the bunk beds? That's what you're thinking, aren't you? And I'll tell you, we had bed rails in the closet. So, hint. It's not enough to own the bed rails. You have to use the bed rails. But when Gavin broke his arm, did that that mean that I, as his dad, loved him any less? Did it change my love for him? No. Not at all. And in the same way, God is a perfect father. Your situation is not a reflection of God's love on you. The cross of Jesus determines how God feels about you, which means in the middle of our suffering, what you and I have to do is continually rehearse and retell ourselves the story of what God has done in Jesus Christ. We have to sit ourselves down and go, okay, Adam, Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He was raised from the dead. He's ruling, he's reigning, and he will return one day to restore all things. And we have to tell ourselves that story over and over and over and over again to remind ourselves where God's love comes from. Verse 4, it says, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Now, that's a but That's a bold promise, isn't it? This illness doesn't end up in death. Now, if you've ever heard the story of Lazarus, you know what happens. He dies. Which is crazy, isn't it? In, in the middle of this thing, it looks like Jesus made a promise, but the situation seems like he's not able to keep his promise. Spoiler alert. Jesus shows up, says, come on out, raises Lazarus from the dead. And what this means is that not only is Jesus faithfully loving you in the middle, endlessly loving you in the middle of your suffering, it means that Jesus is faithfully keeping every single one of his promises to you in your suffering. One of the hardest things when I was going through my cancer diagnosis and treatment was that people, they, I think they were almost scared to face the reality, my reality. And so it would be like, oh, God, God's going God's to gonna do it. He's going to get you through, and it's fine. And they would almost ignore the pain and the suffering. Or, or they couldn't reconcile. Like They wanted these promises to be true, but they had to almost ignore the pain in order for the promises to be true. But what this tells us is that the reality can be true, and God's promises can be true at the same time. And the question is, how do you know? How do you know? Like 2 Corinthians 1:20 says, all of God's promises are yes in Jesus Christ. Every single, every one of the promises God makes, all of them are yes in Jesus. How do you know that's true? That's not just a nice sentiment. The way you and I know that God is always keeping every single one of his promises, no matter our situation, even in our suffering, is because of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus said, I'm coming. I will die. They'll put me in a cave. Three days later, I will get up and I will be resurrected to new and everlasting life. And because he got up out of the grave, it validates every other thing he ever said. Which means his promises are not dependent on the outcome of our situation. The promises he makes are dependent upon his resurrection. And so when you're holding on to a promise of God, you can also live. You don't have to deny the reality of your situation. You actually can live in the reality of the suffering and let the promises of God be good news in it. Because those promises don't depend on the situation. They depend on Jesus and his resurrection. Which means when you pray, talk to God about your suffering. Tell him, tell him the problem. But pray the promises of God. Pray those things that God has said, I promise. And then pray those back to him. So he says, this illness does not lead to death, it's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The, the glory of God, this is what, the glory of God literally means the weightiness of God, the head, like the the fullness of all of God, If you take all of his attributes and stack them all up, and all of his actions, and all of his character, and all of his nature, and you sum them all up. The glory of God is all of that, but somehow it's greater than all of those things. It's all of who God is. And to glorify God, to worship God, it may mean singing a great song. It may mean saying a great mirror. It may mean having this incredible kind of mountaintop moment, but what it means to really glorify God is just to ascribe back to God that he is all that he really is. It's to say, your glory, God? Yes. And so in the middle of suffering, God's glory can exist. He says it is for the glory of God so that God may be glorified. And so, God, what are you doing in the middle of my suffering? It's that Jesus is ultimately revealing God's glory in our suffering. It's for the glory of God. suffering can glorify God. And we know that it can glorify God because when Jesus is on the cross in John 17, Jesus is hanging on the cross, And it says, when he had spoken these words, he lifted up his head to heaven and he said, listen, there is no greater moment in human history of suffering than Jesus on the cross. Jesus did not deserve to die. He had no sin. There were no wages for death to be had in his life. And so there was no more injustice and no more greater suffering than Jesus on the cross. And when Jesus is on the cross, here's what he cries out. He says, Father, the hour, my death, my suffering has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The the point of greatest suffering our world has ever seen was the moment of the greatest glory of God that your suffering can glorify God. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. It doesn't say whatever's good, whatever's happy, do it all. Do what, do, and the all is just whatever's up and to the right and comfortable and nice and successful. Whatever and all is all of our lives. And so whatever you are going through, whatever you are suffering, in, whatever you are hurting through, whatever you are feeling pain in the middle of, take all of that and glorify God in it. I mean, you think about, think about some of the stories in the Old Testament. Abraham and Sarah, they used to be called Abram and Sarai, they were like a hundred years old, decades of suffering through infertility. And through their suffering, God brings about a child that will give birth to a nation, that will give birth to a son that would become the redeemer of the world, Jesus. Or think of Joseph. You know the, the play, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, that whole that Joseph? Which I, I, is still astounding that we tell our kids the story of Joseph because it's like a story of human trafficking. <laughs> His brothers decide they don't like him They want to kill him, but somebody has the bright idea it would be wrong to kill him, so let's just sell him. So they throw him in a pit in the middle of the desert. This guy walks by, pulls him out, sells him into slavery to the king. Then when he's in slavery to the king, he gets accused of having sex with the king's wife, so they throw him in jail. I mean, it's suffering upon suffering upon... I mean, it is all the kinds of suffering in Joseph's life. And then there's this huge famine and his family can't eat. And so they show up and Joseph's standing there. And you would think at that moment, Joseph would go, "Ah, (laughs) see, payback. And what Joseph says is, what you meant for evil, God meant this for good. God was working this situation. And pointing to his glory. What, what. What could be more God-glorifying than in the middle of your suffering when all of your comfort, all of your pleasure is taken away and you still look at God and you say, you're more than enough. You're more than satisfied. I I don't have any of this other stuff, but God, even when I don't have all these other things, I still have you, and you are the satisfaction for my soul. What could be more glorifying to God than that? So he goes on in verse 5. John writes, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after he said to and after this, he said to his disciples, Let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews you were just now seek the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant he was taking rest and sleep. <laughs> I mean, they, they, Jesus is talking about Lazarus dying. They think he's talking about a nap. If you find here, if you find Jesus hard to understand, you will make a great disciple. Verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, I, I don't know, I, this is just me, I just picture Jesus going, okay guys, listen, plainly, Lazarus has died, no nap, Dead. And for your sake, underline that, for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. He says, All, all this is happening is for your sake. For your sake literally just means for your good. All of this, Jesus, all of this is occurring. Because I'm doing something that is for your good in the middle of it. God, what are you doing in the middle of my suffering? Jesus would say, I am working for your good. That's what I'm doing. I'm working for your good. Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes, God is working for their good. It's it's not in some things, it's in all things. If you are a follower of Jesus, God is working for your good, no matter where it comes from. Suffering has a lot of different sources. Sometimes I cause my own suffering, right? I do something foolish, stupid, sinful, and I suffer for it. Sometimes my suffering comes from you. Somebody else does something sinful or wrong or hurtful, and I end up hurting because they did it. Sometimes I hurt and I'm sinful because I live in a busted and broken world. Cells multiply too fast. They're not supposed to multiply that way. Sometimes the enemy goes on the attack to kill, seek, and destroy. There's all kinds of sources to where this pain and this suffering might actually come from. But the thing in it is, no matter where it comes from, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt where it's going. And it's going for your good. It's for your sake. 1 Peter 5.10, let me just read you a couple of verses that I had to really grapple with over the last year or so. 1 Peter 5.10 says this, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace. All grace. As a follower of Jesus, all of God's actions towards all of your life is all grace. Grace is the undeserved. It's actually the ill-deserved favor of God. You know that, right? You and I don't deserve God's grace. We're not even We're not even good. We're not even just morally neutral. We're actually on our own enemies of God. We We don't deserve, we're ill deserving of anything from God. And his grace says, the way I'm going to act towards you is not dependent on what you're doing or what you're going through right now. He is all grace. God never lacks anything grace. And grace is not fair. You and I don't want fair. We want grace. When Gavin and Sophie were little, Sophie was little, she's like two, I bought her this awesome dress. It was the neat, it was, you know, it was one of those like dad-daughter things. I bought her this cute little dress. And so she's opening the dress up, and Gavin's standing over there. He's a couple years older, he's like four or five years old, and he goes, Oh, no fair. Sophie got a dress. And I looked at him, I'm like, I mean, if you want fair, bud, I'll go buy you a dress too. And he's like, nope 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 don't want nope but you and i don't want fair what we want is grace and the god is the god of all grace and he's continually working for our good hebrews 12 starting in verse 5 it says this my son do not regard lightly the discipline of the lord nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. He disciplines us for our good, for our sake, that we may share his holiness. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If you're a follower of Jesus, God is not punishing you in your suffering. If you're a follower of Jesus, God is not punishing you in your suffering. I know what you're, th- you're. You're like you don't even know what my suffering is. I don't care. I mean, I do, but I don't have to know what your suffering is because here's why I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, absolute, take it to the bank, 100% truth. As a follower of Jesus, God is not punishing you. Is because on the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus bore. All of the wrath of God. We just sang about it. All the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. He who knew no sin, deserved no punishment, became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Which means God didn't partially pour out wrath on Jesus and leave some for you. God's wrath was totally satisfied in jesus the work of jesus on the cross was a hundred percent completely correct and full which means there is no more punishment there is no more dissatisfaction for you which means in your suffering god is not punishing you he's disciplining discipling shaping you and molding you to be more like Jesus. And this is one of the things I had to really deal with. Not, not the punishment, but the fact that God was going to shape me in my suffering. That, that he was using suffering to shape me to be more like Jesus. 2 Corinthians twelve seven says this. So to keep me from becoming conceited. Conceited is just self-centered. Now can we agree that conceited and self-centered is not a character trait of Jesus? That might be a character trait of the enemy. So to keep me from, this is Paul writing, to keep me from becoming like Satan, to make me more like Jesus, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, Paul had seen, Paul saw the resurrected Jesus. I mean, he wrote most of the New Testament. The guy saw some things in ministry. And he's writing, because I could have become conceited from all that I saw God do in my life. All the things I got to experience, all the grace, all the work, all the miracles, everything, all the mission, all the life change. So to keep me from becoming conceited, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh. We have no idea what that is. And actually, I'm kind of glad we don't. All we know is it was suffering. All we know is Paul prayed again and again and again to have it taken away. And he says, this thorn was given to me. A messenger of Satan It passes from God through Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. What God is doing in the middle of suffering is not punishing you. It is shaping and discipling you to be more like Jesus. And I had to get to the point in the middle of it and say, all right, God, I I don't know what my conceit is. I don't, know, I don't know what my thing is that's so unlike Jesus, but if this is what it takes to make me less like the enemy and more like my Savior, it, if this is what it takes, then let's do it. Bring it on. Let's not waste it. Let's not deny it. Let's not minimize it. Let's headlong headlong into this thing. And God, whatever you need to do to shape me to be more like Jesus, then here I am. You're the potter, I'm the clay, I don't get to tell you what to do with it. So here I am. Mold me and shape me. And honestly, it was one of the sweetest moments in my life. I don't ever, listen, I don't ever want to go back. I don't want cancer again. Not for me, not for my family, not for my friends. But there was something in the middle of that that the Lord did in my life that he only did in that and through that suffering. And it honestly was some of the sweetest times I've ever had with the Lord. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our comfort, speaks to us in our conscience, shouts to us in our pain. It, our pain, is his megaphone to rouse a dead world. My dead heart. So here's what happens. Four days goes by. Jesus shows up. Lazarus has died. And the sisters come out. They each come out individually. And when they come out individually, they say the exact same thing. In verse 21 and verse 32, they say the exact same thing to Jesus. They say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, what do you think Jesus does? I'll tell you what he doesn't do. Jesus doesn't walk up and they go, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And he's like, whatever. Forget you. Insolent. He didn't do that. He didn't look at him and go, Do you know who I am? I mean, sit down. Let me tell you. Isn't what he does? He meets both these sisters and loves them full of grace and full of truth. He meets them and comforts them exactly the way they need to be comforted. Listen, Martha, Martha needed to be comforted by a theological truth. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She wants to have a theological discussion in the middle of suffering. And Jesus says, okay, that's what you need. I'll go there. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He's like, you want to talk theology? I'll talk theology with you. Here, I am the resurrection. Believe in me, you'll never die. And then Mary walks out. She says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then verse 35, Jesus wept. He wept. One of them wants, needs comforted by this theological truth. The other one needs comforted by the very presence of God just weeping with them. God, what are you doing in the middle of my suffering? It's that Jesus is compassionately comforting us in all of our suffering. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is like nobody else. He's without sin. Yet in every other way, he has experienced everything we experience in his humanity which means that he doesn't just sympathize with us, he empathizes with us, right? Sympathy is if, if somebody else, like if you were to say, hey, um, I wrecked my car and I would never wrecked my car before and I'm like, God, that must, that's terrible, sorry, Oof, that hurts. And I mean it, I just don't know. Empathy is if you wreck your car and I come to you and I go, me too. Me too. I know, I know what oh, is so, oh you gotta go through insurance and buy, you know, I, I get it. That's empathy. And Jesus empathizes with us in our suffering. He's compassionately empathizing with us in our suffering. The word, the word compassion, here I'm gonna teach you a big Bible word, okay? So you can go away from church today and be like, you know what I learned in church? I learned a Greek word. So here's a Greek Bible word for you. Splagitsomai. Okay? Say it. Splagitsomai. Splagitsomai, right? You almost can hear it. It sounds like gutty, like splagitsomai. It just means in the guts. That's the word for compassion. So when it says that Jesus had compassion on them, it, set, it means, like, deep in his guts, there was this thing that just ached in compassion for them in the middle of our suffering. And that's what Jesus is doing in the middle of your suffering. And then it finishes this way. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, he came to the tomb. It was a cave. Now, this should, little bells, if you've been in church, should start going off. It was a cave. And a stone laid against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time, there'll be an odor. For he's been dead for four days. She's like, listen, we've been here. That thing stinks. I don't think you want to open that door up. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took the stone away, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. Now watch this. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Think, picture this. I know, I know we can like almost, pretend, like we can gloss over things in the Bible. Lazarus dies. They stick him in a tomb. They basically mummify him. They wrap him up. They pack these, these oils and herbs and spices all over to preserve the body they put him in this tomb they roll the stone over the tomb four days goes by Jesus is like roll that back they're like Jesus he's dead it's four days plus if you open that thing up it doesn't doesn't matter the amount of spices we put on him it's gonna stink don't do that he does it and then he says Lazarus come out and Lazarus now when we read Lazarus came out we think he's like hey y'all right He, like, comes walking out, like, everything's fine. What it says is that he came out with linen strips in his face, wrapped in cloth. His hands and feet are bound. Like, he comes out, like, that's how he comes out. He's still all bound up in his suffering. And then Jesus says to them, he's standing there, bound up. And Jesus says, he said to them, Unbind him and let him go. God, what are you doing in the middle of my suffering? Jesus is giving us a community to help us walk through our suffering. Listen, when I was about 12 years old, 11 years old, we lived in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, and it was a late one summer night. And we lived in this neighborhood and there was kind of this huge hill. And this, it went down. You know, hills go up and down for you Floridians. And so we were up at the top of this hill, and it kind of came down, the road came down and went around my yard and then ended up at this big grass field that was like 400 yards long. And my buddies and I got on our dirt bikes, all our parents were kind of hanging out in the evening and our friends were out there. And we decided we were going to race our dirt bikes down this hill, and the first person down to the end of this long field down the road through the field into the creek was the winner. And we were going to show off in front of everybody. So we start up at the top. We're on our dirt bikes. Everybody's watching. And we say, go. And I think, in my mind, because I'm so brilliant, I think the shortest distance between two points, because the road went like this, I thought, I'm going to cut right through my yard. Straight line. So we go. And we're going down. And I'm looking. And all my friends peel off to the left. And I go, here it is. And I hit, I go, and I hit the curb, and I just launch on my dirt bike. And then all of a sudden, the dirt bike goes down underneath me, and I'm like supermanning through the air. I mean, flying, hands out like this. And all of a sudden, what goes up must come down, and I come down, and I land like that, and goes, bink, bing, And my bones come out of my arm. Break my bones. My mom jumps up. Runs inside, gets a cookie sheet, a Southern Living magazine, and duct tape. Like, this is not the most redneck thing you've ever heard of in your life. She gets this thing and splints my arm in the Southern Living to the cookie sheet with duct tape to rush me to the hospital. Now, how ridiculous would it have been for me with my bones sticking out of my arm, my arm duct taped to a cookie sheet, and my parents are going, Let's go to the emergency room. And I go, hey, mom, dad, you know what? This is really embarrassing. Why don't we just, why why don't I give it a little bit of time? Let's kind of keep this a secret. Let's keep this to ourselves. Let's not tell anybody about this suffering for a while. And let's just kind of, like, when things get a little better, then I'll be able to tell the story to everybody else. But for now, let's not go to the hospital. You'd be like, you, what? What? That's ridiculous. That's what the hospital is there for. The hospital was built. Doctors were trained. People are there so that when you break your arm and you get hurt, you will go to that place and get the help you need in the middle of your suffering. That's the church. You, this, this church, it, it's not a country club. It's not a social club. It's not a cruise ship. It is a hospital for busted broken suffering people to come in the middle of our hurt and our pain and our suffering and to find people that will walk us into new life when after i had surgery and i had these two tumors removed out of my neck there was a few days where it was kind of rough to talk and then for about a month i really like i couldn't sing i can't sing anyway like i'm no pitch, no tone, no rhythm, like, it's bad. But I I can make a noise, like, and I love it. I love to do it. But we'd be in church, and I would try to sing, and it would be like, and it would like, almost like my voice had gone out. And I just, I couldn't get the note to come out of my voice. And I remember sitting there thinking, God, there's nothing more that I want to do right now than to worship you, but I can't. And I remember turning around and looking at everybody in our sanctuary and thinking, Lord, would you just take their voices as my voice? Like, I can't do it right now, but, but would you let all of their, would you count all of their singing as my singing to you? Would you count all of their praying as my praying to you? Like, I can't, I can't even do it right now. We, we were designed to live in a community, especially in the midst of our suffering. And listen, if things are going really, really well, suffering's a little bit like saving for retirement or college. Once you retire or have kids in college, it's too late to start saving. When, when you're suffering, it's almost too late. I mean, you can go get it, but it's almost too late. What you need is when things are going great to make those deposits into those relationships that you can then cash in and lean into. And I know you're thinking, everything's great, I don't really need it. Okay, that's fine, but I'm just saying make those deposits now because in this life you will have trouble. And if you thought, well, I've already done that, I've already gone through it, or uh, that won't happen to me, great, good for you. The rest of us that are suffering and busted and broken need you who are a Superman to help us. Being a Lone Ranger, being a Lone Ranger is an oxymoron to Christianity private faith we have deeply personal faith we don't have a private faith and then the last thing is this jesus what he's doing in our suffering is he is pointing us to the ultimate hope and healing found only in his life death and resurrection this this whole encounter with lazarus it's not really about lazarus It's really pointing to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That in the middle of our suffering, what Jesus is doing is he is pointing us past the immediate to the ultimate. He's pointing us to the place where we will find all our hope guaranteed and all of our healing guaranteed. You and I may not get all of our healing on this side of eternity, but as a follower of Jesus, you are guaranteed through a blood-bought promise and resurrection to new life that you will get total and complete healing. Listen, Revelation 21 says this, verse 4. He, Jesus. Imagine this. Imagine this is you. And Jesus is standing in front of you. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. And neither shall they be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Because Jesus has been resurrected, There is coming a day when all of creation will be resurrected and those who follow Jesus will get a new body, a new resurrected body and you will live in the new heaven and the new earth with your Savior and he himself, think about this, he himself will wipe away every one of your tears. There will be no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, no more hurt, no more brokenness, no more betrayal. All those things are former things. And they're all passing away. In the middle of our suffering, Jesus is pointing us to the ultimate hope. 1 Peter 5, 10 and 11 were two verses that I just hung on to and I cling to. And they say this, and after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace, who called you into eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will himself restore, establish, confirm, and strengthen you. To him be dominion forever and ever. So listen, your suffering, your suffering may be the greatest It may be the greatest opportunity for you to share the gospel with somebody else. I can almost guarantee you nobody's going to ask you about Jesus because your life is so awesome and you bought a new car. But I guarantee you, you know this is true, you've run into these people who in the middle of unspeakable pain... There's something deep inside of them and you know something's different, different and you want to ask them, and maybe you did, you're like, what is, what is going on? And your suffering may just be the greatest opportunity for you to point and say, here's who Jesus is. Maybe your greatest witness. And maybe you're suffering right now. And I would love if you would just take these things that Jesus is doing and bury them deep down in your soul that you would find comfort in real abiding joy in your soul. And maybe as I'm talking, it's not you who's suffering, but somebody that you love is suffering. And listen, it's the South, so you're going to make somebody who's hurting a casserole. You're going to take them a casserole. It's awesome. Take them a casserole. Even if they don't need it, show up and give them the casserole. With like the cream of mushroom soup in it and everything. Do it. It's awesome. But when you do it and say, here, what if you just said, can I tell you about what God's doing in the middle of your suffering? And you pointed them to this. Imagine how different this would be. And then Jesus says this in verse 26. Do you believe this? Do you believe this is what Jesus is doing in your suffering? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you that you are endlessly loving us. Thank you that you are faithfully working for our good. Thank you, Lord, that you are revealing the Father's glory. Thank you that you are working to shape us more like Jesus. Thank you that you are guaranteeing our total and complete ultimate healing in the resurrection. And so, Lord, may we be people who suffer well. And may we love people well with the good news of the gospel as they suffer. We love you, Jesus. And we cling to you. And we pray it in your name. Amen.